when I sit down to write day to day, I don't know who's going to show up. I don't know what they're going to do. I certainly don't know how my book is going to end. If I knew that, I wouldn't be able to write it. Hello and welcome to AI Arts In, the podcast produced by Creative Pinellas. I am Barbara St. Clair, the host, and I'm here with Lisa Unger, who is a New York Times bestselling novelist. Hi, Barbara. Thanks for having me. I'm very excited. So tell me about the room that you write in. So the room that I write in, and actually it's interesting because we moved from Clearwater to Indian Shores, and I only in the last three years do I have a, a totally dedicated office. You know, in the years prior, my office was just like a little sort of alcove off our, our master bedroom, and that was, you know, fine too. But now I actually have, it's the top floor of our of our townhouse, and it's a loft. Just sort of like a big airy room with lots of light and wall-to-wall bookshelves and a big couch and, you know, my desk and, you know, all my various sort of papers and things. So it's a very light space, like also filled with artwork and stuff that my daughter has made for me and stuff. So it's a very serene place. And I, I love that it's separated out from the house because I feel like when I go up there, that's where I am. And when I come down, that that's where I am. I'm like sort of entering back into the fray. Cause like when I was in my other space, like if I would leave my office to, I would, you know, be confronted by, oh, this bed needs to be made. This thing needs to be done. And so there's all the distractions of the home, which is a, you know, sort of a, a function of working at home is less so in this space. Right. And part of the reason I asked is because I know for a lot of women writers that in my generation anyway, and certainly who have children, the push and pull of, of the domestic life and the writer's life yes. is maybe, you know, interesting to navigate. Yeah, I mean, definitely as a, as a mom, as a, as a friend and a daughter and a wife and a homeowner and a person in the world, you know, there's always a, a gauntlet that you run to get to that creative zone, to get into that, like, sort of creative mental space. You know, I think maybe especially... Women, you know, we have this tendency to feel like, okay, well, as long as everybody else's needs are met and everything else is done that needs to be done, then then I can turn my attention to this, this zone of creativity. And so I think that that's something probably most working parents can relate to. For me, I feel like there are these two, you know, I'm sort of dwelling in the space where I have these two high-level goals. You know, I want to be the best mother that I can be to my daughter. I also want to be the best writer that I can be. And so, you know, often having those sort of like big twin desires, there are, you know, these friction points that that you come up against. But, you know, nobody ever said that art and life was going to mingle easily. Yeah. Nobody yeah. ever made that, <laughs> made that promise. And I think that as long as you have that sort of that propulsion towards the creative, then, you know, you, you will find, you will find your way there. Even if you're tripping over a laundry basket or, you know, sippy cups on your way to that space. You write novels 
crime novels, essentially. Mm-hmm. It, and I almost want to call them true crime novels, mm. but they're... They're that, not. That's sort of, that's sort of <laughs> you know, a you know. But, but I appreciate the sentiment. Right, but oftentimes it's based on something you became aware of, a, a, an event that happened, or... Yeah. But the characters are very created, and as you, were, you said that as a, a mom, as a woman, everyone else's needs are met, and then I can turn to my own needs. Mm-hmm. And I had this little light bulb go on and say, I see that in your characters, in your mm. books, mm. sort of yeah. as pretty much the main characters are often dealing with that issue and where they sort of fall on that line of taking care of their own needs or right. taking care of others. Yeah, I mean, I think that obviously, you know, you bring a lot of yourself to your characters, even though that's not necessarily how I experience it. My, you know, my process is very subconscious. So I write without an outline. I start each story with a germ, a zap, a, a kind of an idea which usually leads me to a swath of research about, you know, some topic that I'm obsessed with. And then the best I can describe it is if it connects with something larger that that's going on with me, I start to hear a voice or voices. And I follow those voices through my narrative. I don't, when I sit down to write day to day, I don't know who's going to show up. I don't know what they're going to do. I certainly don't know how my book is going to end. If I knew that, I wouldn't be able to write it. So when characters sort of appear on the page or they come to me, they definitely feel very much like other. You know, I don't think of them as people that I create. Mm-hmm. I think of them as people that I meet because I explore and, and come to understand them on the page much in the same way that a reader will come to understand them on the page. There's never this kind of intellectual process by which I'm thinking, hey, I'm struggling with this thing in my life and I want to find a way to talk about it through my fiction. That is never the kind of thought I have. It's, it's, it's a much more organic thing that wherever, you know, I am in my life, those threads sort of find their way into the work. I mean, it doesn't take a panel of shrinks to figure out <laughs> why that might be. Well, you know, one of the things that threads through your books, I found you to be a very reliable narrator. Hmm. Which was really interesting to me because Since the characters are so unreliable. The characters, <laughs> well, the characters are in their world. Yeah, and also either either dealing historically with trauma or in the present of the book with mm-hmm. trauma or sometimes with both. Mm-hmm. And so in in real life, anyway, certainly when you're dealing with trauma, your way you're perceiving and then the way you're interacting with the world are a little. Off. Off. Or a lot off. Or a lot. Yeah. I mean, I think that we're all pretty much unreliable narrators of our own existence. I mean, there's only, you know, you take any circumstance, right? Anything that happens, you can pick a memory of a, like, sort of a family event or, you know, several people witness a crime and everybody who's there is going to remember it differently. And probably everybody is going to be wrong in some way, like from the objective truth. And, and maybe, maybe in fact, there is no object, objective truth to the situation as it unfolded. There's only perspectives. And so that's definitely, you know, the case with fiction, of course. And I, in my fiction, I dive pretty deeply into altered states. You know, there's tr- certainly traumas. In the aftermath of trauma is a state in which our perceptions of the world will be altered. I also write about addiction and, and mental illness and, you know, even sleep deprivation, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, can can color the way we're perceiving the world. And it's like these kind of altered states that I find the most fascinating, that those are the places that I really want to, I really want to sort of 
shimmy into and and try to understand and you know specifically like sort of liminal spaces like spaces between things I enjoy exploring that and I mean I think that that is a is a sort of overriding theme you know or I you know something that is a driver of all the novels is like just trying to understand not only what makes us who we are but you know how do we how are we experiencing the the world how how can our perceptions be altered and then what is the impact of that when when you all when you are altered by something like trauma or addiction or whatever it may be so for me in that context as a reader knowing that as i enter into the story with you there there be dragons right mm-hmm. <laughs> we're going to go down <laughs> yeah, into sure. some dark places <laughs> or discover some hidden secrets and if they're hidden secrets of the psyche you know, they're bound to be pretty troubling. Mm-hmm. And so having a narrator who's, as, or the, as you as the writer, the author in a sense, that I can trust the author is going to be. Right, you have to trust the craft, right? I mean, like, these, you can't always trust the characters. I mean, especially my characters, you know, they're often extremely untrustworthy, you know, and they're very, especially in the case of The Stranger Inside, you know, Dr. Hank Reams is, 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 not, is not necessarily a reliable narrator, nor is Rain winter you know they are reliable to a certain degree they're professionals and they're you know they're they're canny sort of recounters of what you know has occurred for them or their moment their moment of trauma but you know when we're talking about sort of how we're defining right and wrong what we think of as as justice what we want from our experience like the at with those different types of motivations, those characters are generally untru- <laughs> generally right. untrustworthy. However, you know, I think that the experience of the reader coming to your work, especially the reader that comes to your work again and again, they know that you are the author, the architect, the that you have, that even if you, in the writing, or in my case, in the writing, even if I don't have an architecture established for each book I don't have a formula or an idea even or you know really even really know what the book is about that my subconscious does know what the book Mm -hmm. is what what the book is about Mm -hmm. and that if you're coming to my work again and again you know that it's you know it's going to be a wild ride every single time but eventually we're going to get where we need to go right so so you know there's a contract there in a sense there, right? oh, there certainly is a contract yeah i mean lisa gardner talks about the contract between writer and reader and and she firmly believes that the contract is you know bad things are going to happen but in the end everything's going to be okay like she firmly believes that that's her contract with the reader I don't necessarily think it's my contract with right, the reader. Like right. people are not always going to get what you what what you think they deserve. Right. But they're always going to get exactly what they need. I mean, like life is full of organic twists. I mean, every day, right? Something happens that you don't expect. So that should be story as well. Mm-hmm. If you're writing from that organic space, then you should be able to compel and impel the reader through the narrative along with you if you're full of sort of joy and excitement and curiosity and you you yourself are tense about what's happening and you know what's going to happen like hopefully you bring your you bring that same gift to your reader that involvement that we as readers we all crave from from story For me, as a reader, your stories are kind of horror stories. Mm, like they can be. I mean, yeah. I guess there's one, that's one way of looking at them. Some of them do sort of veer into that territory. 
you know, there's almost a, like a, I hesitate to use the word because it's so misused. There's a slight paranormal element to a lot, to a lot of my stories, but it's not in the sense that people generally talk about like sort of paranormal or supernatural. Mm -hmm. For me, it's more like a Jungian exploration of that phenomenon. Yes. And we know less about the brain than we do about space. Right. We know less about what's going on inside our own minds than we know about what's going on outside. And I have a lot of questions about what is normal and what is paranormal, so what is natural, example. what is supernatural. Um, one example of that is so in Fragile, at the end of Fragile, there's a there's a psychic. Mm-hmm. And when she turned up, she I was like, oh, a psychic. <laughs> <laughs> what are you doing here? I was like, oh, that's interesting. You know, even if she's a fraud, that's still super interesting, right? And so she sort of turned up at the end of the book, and I thought she was going to have a, sort of a big, exciting role to play. And in fact, she wound up having a really small role in that book. It's a very pivotal role, but like she didn't have a lot of time on the page. And so... When I ended with her, and uh, I ended with Jones Cooper, who I also left in kind of a bad space at the end of Fragile, I became like kind of obsessed with them, and how their relationship would unfold was very uneasy, you know, very two very different types of people, and I could sense that they were, you know, connected, and how was that going to happen? So I wound up going on to write Darkness, My Old Friend. So my escalation of Eloise... As a psychic, as a psychic, is an exploration for me of like the Jungian idea of what is possible with the human mind. Like the idea of the psychic to me does not seem necessarily mystical. To me, it seems like somebody who might be connected to an energetic field that maybe the rest of us don't have have access to. You have know, had those types of experiences with people, and you know there's a there's and, and Carl Jung was very very interested in, in the in the supernatural and the paranormal and felt that in the scientific method the anomalous event is the event that is cast aside like this is you know the thing that doesn't you right. know that doesn't right. fit the doesn't fit the scientific method method right it's asking questions of something that you know it's asking the wrong questions basically of a system that like nobody gets right nobody understands so in, in but in Carl Jung's thinking it was actually that anomalous event that deserved the most exploration right right? because what you know what is it as opposed to like you know we want to create a grid and fit the universe into this grid it's like let's look at the universe and try to understand it in a in a in a broader way so that's how I sort of in my writing that's how I sort of experience the exploration of you know some of my characters who are who have psychic ability and some of my characters who are you know not alive (laughs) some of my dead characters and like are they are they products of my other characters imagination are they is it an actual haunting is it you know these are the questions these are the questions that I don't necessarily answer on the page and only because I don't actually have the answer I don't know and the answer might take the mystery and the interest exactly exactly but it's so what I wanted to go back to is you, you were describing this grid and that what is interesting to you in the Jungian framework is the anomaly. And I thought that's 
for me that was like boom that's the structure of your work absolutely you yeah. have it's the grid it's the hollows right. or it's a city right. Or, right and everybody is uh everything is stable the community is safe yes a, a child is walking home from school or a couple of kids are you know walking through the woods or whatever <laughs> and then boom the anomaly comes right exactly and everything yep. is not what Mm-hmm. And it that's, was presented and as. And that's life. Right. I mean, that is life. That's what, you know, and story is life. And so this is how our lives unfold. You know, you live in a in an idea that your life is stable and that you have an expectation of how things are going to go every day, and then it doesn't go that way. One of the things that's so interesting to me about your work is it's sort of grabbing the past and the present mm-hmm. and kind of pulling them in together. Right, but isn't that what we're all doing? <laughs> How many of us are like actually living in the present tense? That is a really excellent point. Right, like you know, how many of us are actually like in the breath, you know, centered in the moment all the time? Like that's a discipline, right? That's something that we seek. However, most of us are, you know, you're in the moment, you're, you know, still pissed off about something that happened last week, you're worried about something that's going to happen next week, you know, you're trying to, like, blend these, you know, these, this multifaceted version of your life that exists in your mind, right? And that's everybody. So it's like, you know, how, how formed do you feel by your origins, right? Like, we all feel like, I, I am this because of this, or I don't want to be this way because I don't want that to happen a month from now or a year from now or 10 years from now or whatever. So we're all like sort of in this twist of the past and the present and the future. And so I think that that is a, a big part of the reason why many of my novels have, you know, they, they might have a double narrative or we're very much in the past in order to understand the present. Or, you know, we're in a space or some characters are in a space where they're, you know, clinging to somebody they've lost and they're still having conversations with that person and seeing that person. Is that a haunting or is it a hallucination or some combination of those things? And so, you know, that, I mean, that is the reality, I think, of how we're living our lives. So for me, it's a very natural way to tell a story. So how do your characters find resolution in that? How do they get unstuck or... (laughs) I think every, every character has his or her own path and not all of them do unstick themselves and and some of them broker an uneasy peace with the past some of them seek the sort of light road of forgiveness you know they seek their they seek their new normal and they try to use their experiences to become better people some people remain you know entrenched in mistakes that they've made and they remain like sort of stuck in a reality that they can't quite escape. So I think, I mean, that, that answer is like sort of different for mm-hmm. every single character. Like just, you know, as an example in The Stranger Inside, you know, Hank and Rain, they're both victims of one event. You yeah, know, they the, should. There's a, a horrible trauma a hor- like a life altering trauma in their in their childhood, a childhood that they shared, and they began that day as one thing, you know, these very this very deep like sort of loving childhood friendship. This hideous thing happens to them, and they survive, but their friend does not, and they both have different experiences in that moment, 
And then instead of being sort of bound together by the trauma they shared, and, and they, in fact, do remain bound together, but they, in reality, sort of split apart. You know, they both take different roads. So Rain has a, has a road that she takes after this life-altering event, and Hank has his road that he takes. And in some ways, they're, they're very different paths. So they're both living two possibilities. As such, they'll both wind up in very different places. So, which is true of all of us. I mean, we we'll all make a choice after after the worst thing happens. You know, do you do you fold? You know, do you lie down and crumble? Do you stand up and fight? Do you run the other way? Do you seek to draw on your experiences and find you know find joy, find a new normal, find a way to to move forward? Like these are you know. So there is many there is many answers to that question. Is there are characters and people. Well, and that's a lot of the tension in your storytelling. The other tension, there's a few that I found, but one was the amount of energy it takes for people to hide their secrets. Mm. God, yeah. <laughs> it takes so much energy. The universe does not like secrets. It conspires to reveal them. That desire to hide your secrets seems to beget other horrible things to happen. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's to- It's toxic. Right. So like to go back again to like just another Jungian concept, which is the shadow. So there's light in the shadow. There there always is. There's there is not one without the other. It's not possible in a universal framework. And the shadow side of the self is the part of ourselves that we have learned somewhere down the road is bad. Right. This whatever characteristic it might be. And it's different again for everybody. It might be you know, maybe it's jealousy, maybe it's rage, maybe it's whatever, like any part of yourself that you have been told, this is bad. If you show this to the world, you, you, you won't be loved, you won't be lovable. And so you must, you must hide it, right? And so we tamp down, we tamp down these like sort of dark parts of our nature. And then the less integrated we are, right, the less integrated we are with that sort of shadow part of ourselves, the more audaciously it conspires to reveal itself. There's always like some idea that there's going to be like the big villain, right? Like the big criminal mastermind who's like, you know, going to destroy the world and the fate of all humanity kind of hangs in the balance, right? Like these are like sort of the big like sort of thriller concepts, maybe not necessarily crime fiction or detective fiction, but like the thriller idea that the stakes are so gigantic, right? And that everybody has to marshal their resources to, to battle this criminal mastermind. But, you know, the fact is in crime, in real crime, you know, what you have are, you know, damaged people doing awful things because they themselves have been damaged by somebody else. They've come up in these like absolute, you know, horrific circumstances. And then because nobody ever was there to say, this is how you climb out of the mire of your despair choose something other than violence when you're angry like because there's nobody there they could then go on to create more damage and more violence and create more trauma in the world and so that's really the reality of most criminal activity right yes but you're not but i just want to be clear too because um you're not absolving people of moral behavior of course not you're just sort of saying hey those seeds that get planted 
Yeah, they're they going to grow the way they're planted if there's no absolutely changing. no. There's a, and I think that that's interesting that you should bring that up because I think whenever you do start talking about sort of the big texture, the big layers, that people will be like, "Well, that doesn't excuse it." Well, no, but <laughs> you know, we need to really look at some of this stuff to ask the questions about why are people, you know, what what can be changed so that people can so there are more services available that that intervene before some of these you know hideous crimes take place you give your characters multiple times to face their own demons yeah and ask that question how did i get here and and who do i want to be right and it's yeah. really interesting to watch them run away from that <laughs> or, or <laughs> to, <laughs> defer it or yeah. whatever. And yeah. that, in some cases anyway, have that moment where then they get the opportunity to have some freedom of choice and some yeah. control over their life by facing it and addressing it. And I, I see that in, you know, in my own life and then... You know, obviously it plays out, it plays out on the page. And, you know, I still have a few characters who I feel like still worried about them. You know, Lana Granger and In the Blood, you know, uh, Ian Payne in Crazy Love You. I mean, these are, these are damaged people. You know, they've, they've suffered extreme, extreme childhood trauma and they've brokered uneasy deals in, in some respects with the universe with themselves with the people in their lives and you know i'm not sure even though the book is closed i'm not sure <laughs> what the future holds for them i love the way you say you're so worried about them yeah i mean i do still think about them you know because i you know like some journeys are you know some journeys are evolving like my relationship to jones cooper and eloise montgomery and the hollows is a relationship that continues. Like I'm, even though I'm not currently working on a Hollows book, there is a Hollows book that I'm always working on. Oh, and I cool. and know that there's that the story is going to continue. And the Hollows has, you know, it's always trying to, it's always trying to get itself into every book. Yeah, there's always a Hollows cameo, or sometimes there's a Jones Cooper cameo. I he usually shows up when I need, when I need, the guy who does the right thing. The Hollows, when it first turned up in Fragile, was, for me, I mean, I just really did not think any, that much of it. For me, it was like, this is the place where nothing bad ever happens. But, of course, that's nowhere. Because right. bad things happen everywhere. It could have been anywhere, like, in my imagination. You know, like, it could have been anywhere in the world, really. And then it started to sort of present itself as a character. Mm-hmm. And it was a character that wanted something. Like, it had an agenda. Wow. And it was like, you know, it didn't like didn't like secrets. <laughs> it doesn't like secrets. It encourages paths across. It, you know, tends to try to dig up graves. Mm-hmm. You know, and the other thing that continues to fascinate me about it is that there's every character who's involved with the Hollows is having a different experience there. So to Jones Cooper, it's just the crappy town where he grew up and he's trapped. You know, to Eloise Montgomery, in in some ways, it's a it's a it's a vortex. In some ways, it's the the seat of her power. Mm. You know, for Ian Payne, it's like it's like a sucking black hole from which he like cannot escape, no matter how hard he tries. So like everybody brings something to, and then for many other people, it's just the town where they live. Nothing special about it. You know, it's like right. there's a yoga studio and a lovely coffee shop and then, you know, 
a town square where there's, you know, pumpkin patch in the fall and whatever, and it's whatever. So whatever anybody's, whatever you bring to the hollows is like sort of, you know, unique, you know, it's unique to you. So in that, and I find that very interesting. Like I'm not like the kind of writer who could do a series. Like I couldn't just write the same character, the same type of scenario, time, time, yeah. People do that to great to great effect, to great yeah. success, and people love that. They they do like sure. everybody wants that character that never yeah. dies. Of course, unfortunately, that's just like not my path, <laughs> or fortunately, that's not my path as a writer. And I, you know, I love the, about the Hollows that I can continue to go back to the same place and some of the same people, and watch and watch everybody kind of grow and evolve and change. You know, in a in a way that is mm-hmm. unexpected. So I have a sense that you did not come from a family that had tremendous trauma in no. it in your life. <laughs> I didn't at all. My poor parents. They're like, why do you write about this stuff? What's wrong with you? <laughs> no, I mean, I really only had the most banal dysfunction. You know, Beautiful Eyes, which was my 2006 book, the inspiration for it was a piece of junk mail that I received and it was like on one side was the advertisement on the other side is the an age graduated picture of a missing child and so that was the seed for the for beautiful eyes where I looked at this picture and said what if I recognize myself wow yeah and those my parents were like this is basically like your 400 page fantasy about how you're not really our child (laughs) (laughs) this has been a great conversation I've been talking to Lisa Unger the New York Times best-selling novelist Thank you so much. Thank you for having me. This has been wonderful. Thank you. I'm Barbara St. Clair, and you've been listening to Arts In, the Creative Pinellas podcast, sponsored in part by the Pinellas County Board of County Commissioners. Visit St. Petersburg Clearwater and the State of Florida Department of Cultural Affairs. Arts In is produced by Matt and Sheila Cowley. And if you're enjoying this program, we hope you'll take a moment to give us a review. It's easy to subscribe to on your favorite podcast service. You can find more conversations with visual, literary, and performing artists and in-depth arts journalism at creativepinellas.org. Thank you for listening.